0: If you're struggling to find the right marketing strategy for your business, or figuring out which are the right hires to get your company to the next stage, you will want to keep listening. My guests will be discussing what makes a strong go-to-market strategy and how to build a team from zero to one and beyond. This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. My guest is no stranger to the world of growth marketing. Drew Glover is a founding partner of Fiat Growth and general partner at Fiat Ventures. He has navigated the ins and outs of go-to-market strategies and user acquisitions throughout his career. Drew, welcome to the WTF podcast. Tell me about your experience in growth marketing.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. A little bit about my background might be helpful for you to understand where my brain goes in this growth space. My co-founder and I, we come from two separate companies. So, My co-founder, Alex Harris, came from Chime. He was there from Series A to Series D and led a lot of their largest growth efforts, both on the partnerships and paid marketing side. I come from a company called Steady, which helps folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. Collectively, at the time... Around 15 million users combined between Chime and Steady. And Alex and myself, we founded Fiat Growth, which really is a consultancy that does both the strategy and the execution around all go to market efforts. But we work with companies that are pre seed all the way to IPO. 30% of venture dollars typically go directly to marketing. And uh, keeping that in mind, the companies that have a much higher likelihood of not being successful are the ones that aren't able to distribute. That money in efficient, equitable ways. So what we focus on is really making it so when we have marketing budgets, we are doing $10 tests instead of $10,000 tests. We are testing and iterating marketing messaging. We're building out personas and archetypes of the users that we believe are going to be obsessed about our business and running tests against those users to find that first cohort of individuals that we believe are going to be obsessed about our product and be like the first group that is going to prove the product market fit. So for us, what marketing is at its heart is folks are able to equitably test and iterate and measure, not only just figuring out what works, but more importantly, figuring out what doesn't work. And once we run all that measurement, we can lean in with our findings and the things that are working and then scaling that up. What happens a lot of times is founders come in when they first start a company and they say, we want to stand up eight different channels. We want to stand up TikTok. We want to stand up Snap. We want to stand up Reddit and Facebook. And the way you go to market with the product is not standing up 10 different channels. It's finding the two most strategic channels to stand up first, proving those channels out. And then once we prove them out, you know, putting some money on top and making sure we're scaling them up in a meaningful and equitable way. And then once we've proven those two different channels, we can start getting creative with additional ones. But it's really patience and focus that's needed to stand up a lot of these businesses. And that's what we focus on. Because we've seen two, 3,000 different acquisition funnels collectively with our 28 person team, we're able to really lean in and dissect and understand the proper tests that need to take place to probably find out where the product market fit is and how to quickly find success.
0: Drew, that's a great explanation, but maybe we should back up a bit. How do you go from zero to one? And how much of the marketing do you think about upfront? And what kind of marketing budget should you have when you're very early stage and you haven't raised funding yet?
1: Going zero to one, it's really dependent on where we connect with a company. Sometimes we connect with a company where they already have a couple users. Sometimes we have a company that is just an idea or a company that just has a wait list. And they're saying, how do we convert these wait list members? Depending on where we connect with these companies, we have to enter the conversation, really meeting them on their level. But from going from zero to one, it's not about hey, how can we spend money? It's more about how can we build the right strategy so the money we spend is being spent in the right places. Backing up to what I said a little bit earlier, some of the things we start with first is, great, we have this incredible product. Who are the users that we believe are going to use it first? Are they 14-year-olds? Are they Gen Zers? Are they millennials? Where are they living? what are they doing on a day-to-day basis? Sometimes it's breaking it as far down as it's just like building these journey maps. For the individuals that are using your product, are they doing it right when they wake up? Are they doing it before they go to bed? Are they doing it in between meetings during their workday? But figuring out all these different moments throughout users' lifestyles where they're going to engage and then figuring out who those personas are and then designing around those personas. If someone comes and tells me, hey, We're looking to get in front of people that are 14 to 18, that play sports in high school, that also play lots of mobile games. We can build marketing strategies around that. But sometimes we work with a lot of early stage founders where they say, hey, I just know that America needs this product, but that's not how you go to market with a product. You have to get very specific. And so we work, especially in that zero to one phase, to help us get really focused on who we want to go to market with.
0: That was going to be my next question. When entrepreneurs come to you, how much clarity do they already have? And you just build off of their clarity? Or are you helping them to build that clarity? Is that part of what you also do?
1: Yes and yes. We meet founders, we meet companies at all different stages of their growth. And what we typically want to walk in with is understanding where they currently are today and making sure that we're adding value to where they are. And so sometimes that is them saying, we've already run tests and we have proof that this is the user that is going to mo- be most ideal. How can we officially spend $100,000 to acquire those users? We have other ones saying, hey, we've run a couple successful tests, but we're still very much on the ground floor understanding who our users are and you know what our go-to-market game plan is around how we can scale up our business. So again, we work with companies that are pre-seed, which is just an idea, to pre-IPO where you know they already have a million users and they want to get a million to 2 million or 2 million to 10 million. A lot of times for us, it's not a one-shoe-fits-all type of engagement. It's us understanding. And keep in mind, when I say understanding, that is like deep discovery. That's us doing 80% of the listening while they're talking and really understanding where they are today and then us going back into our lab, doing the diagnosis of how we can be most most helpful and valuable to them.
0: For entrepreneurs or founders who are very early stage, what are some tips and strategies that you can provide for doing that level of discovery work? And let's break down what we're talking about when we say testing.
1: Totally. So testing can mean a lot of different things. When we're talking to a super early stage founder, we want to start 10,000 feet in the sky and say, what is your ultimate goal? More often than not, their ultimate goal is we want to get to our next round of funding. Hey, how do we raise a series A? And so when we talk about that goal, we start saying, okay, these are some of the metrics that we're seeing. And because we also have our venture arm, we have this venture capital mindset of what a venture capitalist or a potential investor would want to see. For them to be able to lean in with an investment. When you talk about that goal, maybe we say we're having the discussion of do we want to have 10,000 users that are using one part of our product, or do we want to have 1,000 users that are using all of our product and are staying on the platform for 20 minutes at a time? These are all really interesting metrics and also really different ways that we'd want to actually market that particular product. So, again, we're starting understanding what call it six month or one year goal is. And then we're going back and working hands on with that founder and their team to strategize and engineer how we get to that goal. And sometimes that's dependent on who's already on that team. Maybe they already have a marketing team member that can help us. Sometimes they don't have any marketing folks and it's just a team of engineers that say, hey, we want you guys to take it all. But at the end of the day, once we understand their goal, we go back and reverse engineer how we can be most helpful. When I say testing and iteration, a lot of companies say, hey great, we just got $3 million in funding, we're gonna spend a million on marketing, and they just start throwing spaghetti at the wall and fingers crossed that stuff works. But you have to be able to understand who your potential users are and have really calculated testing of who you wanna get in front of first. Once we built up that profile of who we wanna get in front of, we can start figuring out how we want to build out that audience. And I'll tell you, fiat growth is picky in terms of who we work with. Also because we have the venture arm. We have a fairly unique model. We get paid in getting a retainer and getting equity or advisory shares in the business. But we also ask for the right to invest. So we really only work with companies that we believe are investable. Lots of agencies out there are constantly chasing revenue. And that's really not us. We, of course, want to have a revenue-driving business, but at the end of the day, we want to make it so it's very deeply connected with the venture arm of the business.
0: I like the fact that the companies that you work with are for your venture arm, right?
1: Totally, yeah.
0: So let's talk about how to scale a team. Where should we start? If you're putting a team together, how do you make sure that you have the right people on the bus? What should you be looking for with the people that you bring on board?
1: Yeah, it's especially in this venture capital world where you're scaling up. It's not just hiring the right person, but it's hiring the right people at the right time. And also making sure that you're getting folks and understanding are they zero to one people? Are they one to 10 people? Are they 10 to 100? And
0: I'm going to so need you to break that down, Drew. Yeah. No. In terms of the zero to one, the t- so that the people listening understand the difference that as you grow, you need different people who can grow with you or where do you bring them in? Who do you bring in when you're zero to one versus when you're on a higher growth path? Exactly. So if we can spend some time explaining that, that'd be great.
1: Totally. Yeah. Zero to one is really those individuals that they're more generalist versus specialist they're able to do a lot of things really good versus one thing really great. When you're getting a company off the ground, and we call that the zero to one space, you need folks that can wear a lot of different hats that don't need a ton of guidance, that just call it, for lack of a better term, just get shit done. Then as you start to grow, you start realizing you need very specific specialists for different parts of your business. Maybe you're launching a feature in your product and you need someone that has deep, deep experience around that feature, and they can help own that entire side of the business. Zero to one folks aren't always the ones that are gonna be there 10 years down the road, but they will be there for the first two to three years and make a massive impact on your company. Then, of course, once you get to the later stages, you start realizing that the people running the business, the top are generalists, but the majority of your company are all specialists. So you know that vertical or that corner of the business is taken care of because that's all they obsess about. That's what they work on perfecting. So when growing a business, it's really tough because you're constantly looking for A players, but an A player specialist, when you are just getting your company off the ground, Isn't always the best thing because you want people that can really draw outside of the lines and be able to pick up these different responsibilities because their soul is fed by just being able to do a lot of things well. And it's important as a founder, as part of the executive team, to realize these different chasms in your business, right? Of when do I need to hire that specialist versus when do I need to hire that generalist? Because The difference between someone that can color outside of the lines versus someone that can color inside the lines really well is the difference between you being able to get your business to product market fit, which is you have enough users that are using your product to where an investor will look at you and say, I see that the world needs this. Now we need to make that big investment in your company so we can scale it up the best way we can.
0: I assume that these are things that you're looking at when you're looking at teams for your venture arm when they come through the door, right?
1: Totally, yeah. Early stage venture, like that initial team you're investing in, a lot of times these are, these are individuals that have a very special DNA. They're not just someone that can just build a vertical of a business. This is someone that can raise money, that can recruit well, that has a vision that's not two feet in front of them, but five years in front of them. It's someone that has a deep, deep hunger to build something that will change the space, and someone that over the next 10 to 20 years can continue evolving. And when the company changes, they can change with it. We go back to this specialist DNA. They serve a really valuable purpose for different parts of the business and different stages of the business, but they're the ones that can truly stand an entire arm up. But again, That's what their specialty is. They're not necessarily going to do that and then ask to go to an opposite side of the business and help grow that.
0: I'm speaking with Drew Glover, a founding partner of Fiat Growth and a general partner at Fiat Ventures. I was going to break up these two parts of the conversation with you between the marketing and the investment. But I think the way the conversation is flowing, I'm just going to pivot into that. You started as an entrepreneur and now you are on the other side as an investor. Tell me about your fundraising journey as an investor and ways in which it's similar to that of an entrepreneur who's looking to raise financing to scale or grow his or her business.
1: There are some, there are definitely some overlap and similarities, but there's also a very, very different side of it all. We've had over a thousand different conversations. Raising a fund is having a very focused vision. It's, understanding the impact you want to make on the world and being able to tell that in a very concise way. It's being a really incredible storyteller and being able to deeply evaluate businesses where you can basically understand what makes these companies special and how and why they are going to become the next multi-billion dollar businesses. Luckily for us with Fiat Growth, we're able to evaluate these businesses through that arm of the business. We get to work hands on with them for three months to a year prior to leaning in from an investment. So fiat growth doubles as a due diligence arm for us. It doubles as the evaluation arm for us. It also doubles as this way to have exposure to the market so we can naturally see the different trends that are happening and what's popping up, what's not working, what is working. That is a very unique story in the venture side of the business, the typical investor goes to a lunch with a founder and looks at a well-manicured deck and says, "My gut feeling is telling me to invest in them." We get to measure; we to do a lot of measurement before we invest. The journey of telling that story and trying and really telling the impact of what we can do with our very unique structure—it's it, it, been nothing less than a grind. But I'm telling you, like these thousand conversations we've had, it starts with one conversation. We have three other introductions that happen from that conversation, and that fourth person we meet is typically someone that says, I get this, I wanna be a long-term partner and investor in what you're building, and then at that point, we're really able to turn it into a magical relationship. Venture capital, it's a relationship business, but it's also a business of returns, right? We're investing in these businesses our investors expect and they deserve, and we work very hard to provide them with outsized returns. One thing that we also focus on is our mission, which we wanna lower the access barrier for the 90% of America that need the most financial help. Historically, they've been forgotten. Historically, the 10% of America that already has money and just needs help managing it has been the focus. So for us, it's also making sure that we're making a positive impact on the world for that 90% of America, or even more importantly, the 75% of America that doesn't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency and helping them rethink about their relationship with money, and build for generational wealth for generations to come. There's, again, a lot of overlap with another founder that might be raising for a specific, a specific product in this fintech space. But I would say the big difference is for us, we're investing in a suite of products, and they're getting people to invest in one product. So we're building we are building a portfolio of investments while that individual founders is raising money for one individual investment. But yeah, it's just a different way you're telling the story because it's a different type of relationship you're building with the potential investor. One investment versus just as many investments.
0: So because you've been on the other side, when entrepreneurs are in front of you, Like, what are some of the questions that you ask? Like, how should they prep to come pitch to you? If someone is early stage, what are some of the things that you're looking for versus someone who is a little bit further along?
1: Early stage, we're really looking for the proper kind of like founder DNA. We're looking for the team. We're looking for the idea and the vision of the product. A lot of times, majority of the time, they already have a product built, but it's a, an MVP, the most valuable product. And what we're looking for are these early signs. Are the people that they're getting their product in front of, The how are they engaging with the product? Are they obsessed with it? What are those early success signals? But again, we always talk about it as team and TAM and then product. So team, is this the right team to take this to the moon? TAM is the total addressable market, is the product they're building, is the market they're building it large enough for if we own 10% of it, would it be a multi-billion dollar company? And then the product is really the idea and what they built. So is this, is the team and what they're building something that is going to be a delightful experience that is going to engage with the user in the best way? Because we get to work with these folks on the fiat growth side, we really get to dig in deep with the founder and understand what those dynamics are with the founding team and the rest of the team and how they face adversity and how they celebrate the good times. That is something really hard to find in the venture space because early stage investing is so much gut and your understanding of trends in the market. For some of these later stage businesses, there's just a lot more data to go off of. I'd say the later stage the business, the more of a math equation it becomes. Because you're saying, all right, this is how much money you're spending to acquire a user. This is how much time they're spending on the product. And you have all these numbers that you can basically equate and anyway even compare to the rest of the market or other competitors they might have. Early stage investing is always the toughest, it's always the most risky, but it also gives you the most upside for the long term because you're investing at such an early stage that their valuation's low. And as they keep raising money over time, you were basically one of the early believers. However, the later stage one, the risk goes down a bit because you're able to look at the business from a data standpoint. Show me all your users, show me the usage rate, show me how much you're paying for each user and so forth. We get to work with them on the fiat growth side. So our access to data on the ground is much deeper than anybody else out there in the market. However, the way we evaluate these teams when they're just getting an idea off the ground versus they've been around for three years is very different.
0: Drew, as we get ready to wrap up, can you tell me? We know what the risks are for investing really early. Let's talk about some of the potential rewards if you get it right at the early stage.
1: The folks that invest the earliest so are the ones that win the biggest. But again, you have to look at the world. When you're investing early stage, you have to be incredibly educated on what you believe the future looks like. And you have to have a very focused hypothesis and mission on where the world is headed. For example, I'm a big believer that people's relationship with money is getting younger. I'm a big believer that
0: What do you mean by that,
1: yes. I'm a big believer that 14-year-olds, I believe that Gen Z is no longer just doing paper routes and they're no longer just selling opening up lemonade stands in front of their houses or wherever they live. You know, now they are reselling, they're buying shoes and reselling them on StockX. They're opening up Etsy stores. They, they are, are
0: entrepreneurial at an early age.
1: Very entrepreneurial. The
0: inflation and digital age.
1: A hundred percent. And so what comes with that is they need to they need to manage their money at an earlier age. They need to pay taxes on that money. There's all these different things that, unfortunately, aren't taught readily in schools. So like one of the big trends that I see is I think teen banking is going to become like a really big trend. I believe that there's going to be a lot of products popping up that if built right are going to be able to get in front of this new user that historically was too young to engage with money that is now very much a consumer in the United States and frankly, the world. That is like a very clear mission that I focus on and doing a lot of deep research on. So when I see these companies popping up in that space, I can really lean in from a very educated point of view at a very early stage and say, this is a space that needs your product right now. Therefore, we want to work with you on the fiat growth side. But even more importantly, we want to look at you as a potential investment for fiat ventures.
0: True. Thank you so much. And to those who have been Liftman, I hope you We're able to glean in terms of what Drew said at the last bit about the types of companies that people should be building to try and capture that Gen Z generation. And it's about really looking at where the trends are in terms of what business you want to create to make sure that you are solving present and potentially future problems. Because that's what business is all about. It's who are you solving a problem for and how big is the market for the people you are solving that problem for. Any final pieces of advice that you would like to part with before we close?
1: For anyone starting a company out there, I would just make sure you are truly taking your time to do your research and understand the spaces you're most interested in. I promise you, the more research and measurement you do prior to founding or starting a business, give you really clear insight and vision of the different opportunities around products you can build. To me, some of the, like the biggest mistakes that are made is I'm talking to folks that just don't know the market and the space that they're building products in. But again, I go 10 feet deep on how people's relationship with money is getting younger. Therefore, I can see so many different opportunities and I look at the world very differently. So just make sure you're doing the proper research measurements before you lean in. And I promise you'll be able to see the world and all the opportunities in a very special way.
0: Drew, tell us where we can learn more about you and Fiat Growth, Fiat Ventures, all that good stuff. Where are you on socials?
1: Yeah, of course. I speak a lot on LinkedIn. Just look for me, Drew Glover, founder of Fiat Growth and general partner at Fiat Ventures. That's probably the main place. I also respond on LinkedIn. So if you have any questions, feel Be free sure to shoot me. Make sure that you line.
0: accept my connection request that I just sent you.
1: Oh, I will. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I will. And uh, yeah, everyone else, feel free to do the same but always down to have great conversations and hear new ideas.
0: That's wonderful. And to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I like to say, don't keep good information to yourself. So when you listen to this episode, if you like it, make sure you rate, review, and share it with other people who could benefit from hearing it. Subscribe to the podcast at its new home on the Alive Podcast Network. And the podcast is available on all major streaming podcast platforms. New episodes drop every Friday. Make sure that you follow the podcast on Instagram, on its LinkedIn page at Where's the Funding, and follow me on LinkedIn, Michelle D. McKenzie. Join me next Friday for another episode.